0: Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken." Our Father, we've just sung Holy Scripture back to you. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. You said righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. We confess our sins are great as a people. We have rejected your providence. We've rejected your Holy Word. Our government is calling evil good and good evil. And we wonder why our nation is in such shambles. But we are so thankful that you are sovereign, that you are not wrangling your hands in heaven, but you rule in the heavens above and that someday you will culminate human history as we know it and your purposes will be perfectly achieved and unfolded. You told us an hour is coming when no man can work and so help us to be good stewards of the gospel that you've entrusted to us. You told us to follow you and that you promised to make us fishers of men. We believe that with all our hearts, so help us to follow you. Help us to be faithful to the gospel. Help us to be distinctly different from the people of this world. Not conformed by their values, but transformed through the renewing of our mind that we might know, prove, and realize That your will is something that is good and acceptable and perfect so please come and help me fill me anoint me use this message the ears of all who will hear it may the spirit of god accomplish his work as he uniquely is able to do i ask it in jesus holy name amen take god's word would you this morning turn to the book of first thessalonians chapter 5. if you are joining us for the first time we recently completed the prophet jonah And so we are between expositions of entire books, and right now I am doing a 15-week series, at least that's what I projected could go longer, on God's prophetic schedule. And so you can see the sermon outline today is about the day of the Lord that the Bible tells us will come like a thief in the night. A new day called the day of the Lord is going to come, and it's described in Scripture as a day of great blessing, And it's described in Scripture as a day of great horror. And if we're not living in the time frame described in this chapter, we're certainly living on the threshold of that time frame. So many of the pieces of the puzzle that Scripture predicts are coming true in our life. It's pretty amazing that many listening today, during our lifetime, we have witnessed the rebirth of the nation of Israel. We've seen the rise of Russia to a status of a world power there especially in terms of the Middle East something scripture predicts as we recently studied as we dealt with Ezekiel 38 the war of Gog and Magog many sitting here today have witnessed the resurgence of militant Islam you've seen the upsurge of a sodomite society that is now covering the planet and we are witnessing a certain political economic and moral bankruptcy that seems to grow with every decade that comes. And so it's all predicted in Scripture. It's like one big jigsaw puzzle, and God is putting the pieces together. Now, the time period that we are studying today is given many titles. It's called the Great Tribulation. It's called the Time of Jacob's Trouble. It's called the Day of the Lord. Listen to how John describes this time frame in Revelation chapter 16. And I saw a coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. That's the unholy trinity. The dragon in that chapter is Satan. The beast is his coming antichrist and the false prophet. He is the one who will point men to the antichrist. And so coming out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great god for the war of the great day of God the almighty notice the final words in that verse the great day of God the almighty it's one of many titles given to this time frame called the day of the lord the bible teaches that jesus was crucified Buried, raised from the dead, he walked on the earth for 40 days, he ascended into heaven, and he is coming back again to judge the living and the dead. But his physical return to the earth will be preceded by an absolutely terrible and horrible time like the world has never, ever seen before. Jesus said this in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred, since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will again. And if those days had not been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. He's describing something that is very serious, very unique, that has never happened in all of human history. In fact, when he described this period to the church at Philadelphia, he said it is a time of testing to come upon the whole World. There has never been a time of testing that has come upon the whole world, but it is coming. It is in front of us. It's called the great day of God, the Almighty. And as you study it, it is not only a time of great darkness, it is also a time of great blessing. And the time of blessing, John will unfold later in the Revelation in the 19th chapter when Jesus will physically, literally return to the earth. He'll rule and reign for a thousand years. And we'll study that in the months ahead. But until that time, God is setting the stage for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to come back, that he will indeed rule, and he'll rule with great might. And of course, during that time, uh, God will use uh, prior to that, this time of the tribulation, to bring the Jewish people to Christ. And to bring those Gentiles who have never heard the gospel before in power, in authority, in clarity, the first chance to receive Christ. Those who have heard it before will have no such chance. But those who have not heard it will have their first and final chance during this time called the day of the Lord. And at the end of the day of the Lord, God will then uh, create a new heaven and a new earth, And the new jerusalem where your loved ones are today if they know jesus as savior it will literally physically actually descend from heaven and sit on a new planet and we will enjoy eternity with the lord in that place so just as a new day is coming called the great day of god that will be a time of great blessing it will be a time of immense horror now if you're new to the bible And even if you're just a casual reader of scripture, you cannot miss the fact that a central theme of scripture is the return of Jesus from heaven. And you would expect that to be the case because Jesus is about salvation. His name means salvation. And he is going to come back someday to complete our salvation. It has been paid for in full, but it has not yet been completed. We are not yet in our resurrected bodies when we will become as he is. And so, we're looking forward to that day. And so, it's not surprising that all the way through Scripture, the return of Christ is predicted, not to mention John will write in Revelation 19 and verse 10, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He's reminding us that the very nature, spirit, and sum of prophecy is to testify to the Lord Jesus. And so, the final words that Jesus speaks in the Revelation is, yes, I am coming quickly, to which the Apostle John says, Amen, even so come, Lord Jesus. And so this morning, we want to examine this time frame. It's one of 15 messages, 15 different pieces of the puzzle that we're going to look at in this series, and it concerns the day of the Lord. Now, there are many passages in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that describe this coming day. But we're going to focus this morning on one central passage that addresses this issue. I hope you have found it by now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Follow along with me beginning now in verse 1. Now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly. Like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should, would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing." I suppose there are two distinct issues that come up over and over and over again that the people of this world and believers are often fascinated by and sometimes perplexed by. The first relates to what happens after you die, and the second concerns what happens at the end of the world, as an unbelieving world often describes, the end of the world. Of course, the Bible never speaks of the end of the world. It speaks of our moving from age to age, from one age to another, and certainly this planet will someday end, and God will create a new heaven and a new earth, but the world will never quote-unquote end. We will just move from one age into another. Now, if you're here in our study of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul addressed that first important critical question, what happens when we die? And some of the church at Thessalonica were ignorant. They were uninformed about what would unfold when Jesus came back. They knew that they would be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. What they did not understand concerned those saints, those brethren, those loved ones who had already died. Would they be raised at the end of the great tribulation period? Would they be raised at the end of the thousand year reign of Christ? What role would they have in the coming kingdom of God? Precisely when would their loved ones be raised? Now, I know that the Bible is brand new to many of you. We have a few hundred new believers since COVID began. In eschatology, that is eschatos, last things, the study of last things is a brand new topic to many of you. And sadly, we live in a day where Bible prophecy is largely ignored. So let me just see if I can give kind of an an overview, but I think will help us all. Here's a chart unfolding the premillennial view of Christ. Millennial means thousand. And so the concept that Messiah is going to come back and rule and reign on the earth, we prayed in the Lord's prayer, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is not a New Testament concept. That's unfolded in the Old Testament. What's unique to the New Testament is the length of the kingdom that it is a thousand years long. And so when we speak of the premillennial return of Jesus, we're saying his second coming will happen before his thousand year reign. So let me give a broad picture. Right now, we're in the church age. That is, Christ is building his church. He promised to do that. How long will he build his church? We don't know. But we know that when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, when the last Gentile who's going to believe will believe, then the Lord will come for his bride. So there will probably be more than likely a slowdown towards the end. Instead of more and more and more and more people coming into the kingdom, it will slow down, and then God will say, there's the last one, and it could be today. Maybe someone in this service, maybe someone listening somewhere in the world today will give their heart to Jesus, and the Father will say, son, go get your bride. We call that the church age. It will be followed by the rapture, we'll be caught up, and then there will be a seven plus year period known as the tribulation, and I say seven plus years. We don't know how much time there is from the rapture to the start of the tribulation, it's not immediate. It could be weeks, days, months, possibly years, though I doubt it's years. But there will be a space of time where this one world leader will come on the scene, he'll sign a covenant, with the people of Israel, and once the covenant is signed, it's unfolded for us in Daniel 9, the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, that seven-year period, spoken of in both the Old and the New Testament, will begin to unfold. At the end of the seven-year period, Jesus physically, literally, comes back to the earth. So the rapture, the catching up of the church, and the second coming are two distinct events. We will come back with Jesus. First he comes for his saints, then he comes back with his saints. At the second coming, Old Testament saints are raised. We're raised in the rapture of church saints, Old Testament saints at the second coming. Tribulation saints, that is those who were one to Jesus during the time of the great tribulation, who lost their heads because that will be the means of execution the Bible teaches. They'll be raised at that moment. And those Jews and Gentiles who survived the great tribulation period They will go into the millennial reign of Messiah in their natural bodies. So if you were here in April, we studied that next great event called the rapture. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. There's their answer. What will happen to our loved ones who've already died? They're the first ones to go up. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. This word caught up is one word in Greek, harpazo. And if you go into the Latin translation of the Bible, which was virtually the only translation the body of Christ read for a thousand years, it translates it with a word that gives us our word directly in the English, rapture. Now, I told you a few weeks back that if you haven't heard it already, you will. You will meet someone who will say, well, the word rapture is not found in the Bible. And they're absolutely right. But neither is the word Bible found in the Bible. (laughs) Neither is the word Trinity found in the Bible or Sunday found in the Bible. But the Bible teaches the catching up of the church. We affirm the authoritative word of God, the only book God wrote. We recognize there's one God who lives in three co-equal, co-eternal persons, and we are here on the Lord's day as God commanded to gather together as his people. So it doesn't really matter what you call it. It is going to happen. Now, I need to tell you that there are some people who just say there's just one big event in the future, the second coming, And they bring together the second coming and the rapture, and they make it one event. They're called amillennialists. This is what it would look like. Amillennialism says we are in the church age. Christ's kingdom is right now. Well, there is a sense that's true. He's not up in heaven letting the world just go to hell, and he's not involved in it. He's very much involved. He is ruling. He is reigning. And the kingdom of God, in one sense, is in you. But that's not the literal kingdom that the Bible promises that still is yet in the future. And so they would say, oh, when the Bible speaks about tribulations, it's just those heartaches that you go through during this life. Well, no. Jesus spoke of a seven-year period, as did Daniel ed did the Revelation. In fact, he splits it into two, two, three-and-a-half-year period. It's a future time. And it's more than just trouble. In fact, it is so troubling, as Jesus just said to us, unless those days had been cut short, nobody could have survived. So for them, there's just one big event coming. It's called the second coming. There'll be one general judgment, and we'll all go to heaven, and that will be the end. Nothing could be further from the truth. But the reason they come to this conclusion is because it seems that for 1,900 years, God did nothing. And so fundamental to amillennialism is what we call replacement theology. Now stay with me. Don't glaze over. Replacement theology says that the church is the new Israel that God's done with the Jewish people. But he is not. God made an unconditional covenant to the Jewish people. And he is going to culminate human history through the Jewish people. Last week we were at the Dead Sea. And I read these words from Ezekiel 47 to the people who were with me and it will come about the fishermen will stand beside it he's talking about standing behind beside the dead sea from Engedi to eneglain those are two cities along the dead sea and there will be a place for the spreading of nets their fish will be according to their kinds like the fish of the great sea the mediterranean very many now if you know anything about the dead sea it's 6 times saltier than the ocean absolutely nothing lives in it And because Israel is largely being watered through the Jordan River more and more every year, the Dead Sea is shrinking. In fact, it's shrinking about four feet a year. I explained to them when we were driving down the highway, I said the Dead Sea used to be right there, just on the other side of this road. And now you look and it's almost three quarters of a mile away. It's shrinking, 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 shrinking. But God says a day is coming when men are going to fish in it and they'll spread their nets by it. What do you do with that? You just blow that off? No, the Amillennialist will spiritualize the text, and he'll say, oh, no, 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 no. The Dead Sea, that just represents lost people who are dead in Christ. When we share the gospel and we're offering living water, we're being like fishers of men. Look, if you spiritualize and allegorize the Bible, you can make it mean whatever you want it to mean. God said what he meant, he meant precisely what he said. And every single prophecy for the first coming of Christ was literally actually fulfilled. And why he would fulfill the prophecies for the second coming, would be ridiculous, and we have no freedom to come up with some system of how to interpret the Bible when God modeled in the Scripture from the first coming of Christ and through the interaction of the apostles and Jesus with Old Testament texts, how it is that we are to interpret the Scripture. You just take it at the plain reading. You've heard me say many times, when the plain sense makes good sense, you should seek no other sense, otherwise you'll come up with nonsense. And so it is sheer nonsense to deny that God is going to fulfill the promises that he made to Israel that are unfolded in the New Testament. So the rapture and the second coming are two distinct events. And if you just read scripture at face value, really you could come to no other conclusion. Think your way through this. At the rapture, as this chart reminds us, Christ comes in the air. Whereas at the second coming, Christ comes to the earth. We just read that we will meet the Lord in the air. But at the second coming, Jesus comes back to the earth. Listen to what the prophet Zechariah, the 14th chapter says. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move towards the north and the other half towards the south. Again, two distinct events. Not in the air, but his feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives. In fact, he'll split it in two. At the rapture, Christ comes for his people. Whereas at the second coming, angels come for the lost. The Lord himself will descend from heaven. Isn't that great? He's coming for us. He's not going to send an angel for us. He is coming for us, and we're going to meet Jesus in the air. But at the second coming, God is sending his angels out to collect the lost. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 13, 41. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. This chart also indicates a difference between these two events in terms of where each group of people is taken. The rapture, we're taken to heaven. At the second coming, the lost are carried to Hades. Again, we meet the Lord in the air. And what did Jesus promise? This we say to you by the word of the Lord. Well, Jesus made this word. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, where is he in heaven? There we may be with him also. However, at the second coming, God's angels come not to take the lost to to, to heaven. He sends his angels to take the lost to Hades. Again, Matthew 13, the Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom, all stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness. There will be no unbelievers in the coming kingdom. You must be born a second time to enter the kingdom of God. The only unbelievers in the coming kingdom are those who will be born to tribulation saints. And what will he do with these unbelievers? He will throw them out into the furnace of fire, and that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said the same thing in the Olivet Discourse. Listen to these words, Matthew 24, 37. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. And among the parallels, he definitively says, then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Just like in Noah's day, the people who were taken away were carried away in judgment. Even so, unbelievers at Christ's second coming will be carried away in judgment. By the way, this has nothing to do with the rapture. Hal Lindsey came up with that, as best I can tell through my reading and study in the last 40 years. He was the first one to invent that interpretation. It totally ignores the content, and we will study it when we come to the Olivet Discourse. Luke says it this way in Luke 17: Two men will be in the field. One will be taken again in judgment. The other will be left to enter in the kingdom. And answering, they said to him, We're Lord. And he said, where the body is, there, are, there also the vultures will be gathered. Now, we live in an area where we have vultures, turkey f- vultures, I guess you call them. And, and when there's something dead, you know it. They're all over it. And Jesus' point is, much as a dead body causes vultures to gather on it, spiritually dead people are assigned to coming judgment. They are disqualified for the coming kingdom. Now, we'll discuss that in... Very, very careful order in the weeks ahead, if you will stay with me. So even so, when Christ returns, the righteous, those who survive the Great Tribulation, who become believers during that seven-year period, and by the way, it will be the greatest revival in all of human history, the church won't be here, will be gone, but God will use 144,000 Jews, two witnesses, and an angel. Why not the church? because this is Israel's time. God will use Israel as a witness. The church is mentioned some 19 times in the first three chapters of the Revelation from chapter 4 to 18. You don't find the church at all. Not mentioned once until the end of the book when we come back with Jesus. So people do not want to be left behind when the rapture takes place. Um, on the other hand, if you're here for the tribulation and saved, you want to be left behind for the second coming because at the second coming, unbelievers are carried away in judgment. At the rapture, Jesus comes before the hour of trial, before the hour of testing, whereas at the second coming, he comes after the hour of trial. Listen to what Jesus promised in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10. He's speaking to the church at Philadelphia. He said, because you have kept the word of my perseverance... I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. We will be kept out because Jesus is coming back to get us. Now, notice, he does not say, I will keep you through the hour of testing. He does not say, I'll keep you in spite of the hour of testing. He does not say, I'll keep you in the midst of the hour of testing. I will keep you ek out of the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world. That's never happened. There's never been an hour of testing on the whole world yet, but it is coming. By contrast, in Matthew chapter 25, at the end of the tribulation, We read, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. This chart also helps us to see that between the two events, there are no signs for the rapture because it is imminent, whereas there are many signs for the second coming, The Lord Jesus could have returned in the Apostle John's lifetime. Could have returned in the Apostle Paul's lifetime. We who are alive, he used the first person pronoun because he lived with a sense of expectation that he could have seen it. And he was right to live with that sense of expectation because nothing has ever needed to be fulfilled since the inception of the church for Jesus to come and catch up his church. Whereas the second coming of Christ is very much a prophecy-driven event. There is much that has to happen for the second coming to unfold. In addition, this chart also helps us to see something about the timing of the resurrections. The resurrection of believers in the church age takes place when Christ comes in the air. Whereas the resurrection takes place at the end of the tribulation after Christ descends to the earth. We just read the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet them in the air. That happens before the tribulation. But there's another resurrection that will take place after the resurrection. Listen to what Daniel chapter 12 says. Now, at that time, Michael, Michael's the great archangel of God. Now, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands over the sons of your people, he's talking about the Jews, will arise, and there will be a time of distress, such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Sounds familiar? Jesus said the very same thing. There's a time of distress that has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, the Jewish people, Daniel, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life and the others to disgrace in everlasting contempt. So after the tribulation, that's when Old Testament saints will be raised so that they might join the church saints and rule and reign with Christ for that thousand years upon the earth. So we will study that again in depth later on in this series. In addition, there's a difference between the two kinds of bodies people will receive when Jesus comes back. Think your way through this. At the rapture, believers will receive glorified bodies. The twinkling of an eye will be changed, will become like him, Paul underscores in Philippians. Whereas believers who are alive... At the second coming, they will retain their natural bodies. The only ones who are raised up in glorified bodies at the second coming are those who've already died or those who died during the time of the great tribulation. But believers who are alive at the second coming, unlike the rapture, they enter into the kingdom in their natural bodies. When we are raptured, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that we'll be changed and we will be like the angels. Listen to what Paul says. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep or not all die. Why? But we will all be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. Likewise, Jesus said, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given a marriage but are like angels. Please notice it does not say we become Angels. So it's bad theology when you hear someone say, or you say, well, my daddy's an angel now. No, he's not. God made a fixed number of angels never to create anymore. It doesn't say we become angels. It says we become like angels. How so? And that angels do not procreate and have little baby cherubs contrary to popular artwork. No, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed, we'll have a glorified body, and we will not procreate, we will be like angels. And we will see, however, as the Old Testament affirms, and we're going to study when we come to the millennial reign of the Messiah, that those who are alive during the return of Jesus, they will enter into the reign of Messiah in their natural bodies, They'll have children and grandchildren and great grandchildren. What I'm trying to say is, you cannot make the rapture and the second coming the same event without butchering scripture, without spiritualizing the text, and ignoring some plain truths. So, again, here's a chart so we can visualize it. We're in the church age. The next event is the rapture. At the end of that seven year plus thousand years, Jesus will conclude this current heaven and earth, and we'll go into eternity future. At the end of that thousand years, Peter says, the current heaven and earth will be destroyed. He's going to melt it down with fire. People say, do you believe in global warming? I believe in a global meltdown. He's going to totally destroy the planet. He's going to create a new heaven and a new earth and again where your loved ones are, that city will come down and sit and become the capital of a new heaven and a new earth. But what I want you to see here on this chart is between the rapture and at the end of the thousand years, that whole time frame in scripture is called the day of the Lord. And so in that sense, it's a day of horror, but it's also a day of great blessing. And so concerning their questions regarding their loved ones, Turn back a page to 1 Thessalonians 4. I know some of you don't bring a Bible because you're new here for the first time and you've never needed one in a church. And I get that. That tells you how sick the church is today. I'm not here to unfold my mind. I'm here to unfold Scripture. You don't need my opinion. You need the authority of the Word of God. First Thessalonians 4, but those, but we do not want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, those who are dead, so that you may not grieve as do the rest, meaning unbelievers who have no hope. They have zero hope. Now they can manufacture a false hope in their heart. Oh, he's in a better place. No, he's not. Not without Jesus. If he dies without Jesus, he dies under the eternal wrath of God. He that believes in the Son has life. He who does not believe, the wrath of God abides on him. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's what we just saw confessed in this baptism. When they're immersed and raised, you are symbolically saying, my hope, my faith is in the death and resurrection. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Why? Because the moment you die, while your body is laid in the ground, your spirit The immaterial portion of you goes home to be with Jesus, to be absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. So he'll bring back with him from heaven those who have fallen asleep. Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. There is their answer to their question. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. They're the first to come out. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we, so we shall always be with the Lord. So comfort one another with these words. So the first ones to go up are those who are in the grave, and we'll be caught up, and we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. That's faster than you can blink your eye. In a moment's time that man cannot even measure, we will put on our new resurrection bodies. Now, sometimes when we preach the return of Jesus, we use it to threaten people and frighten people. And I suppose in one sense, you should be frightened if you don't know Jesus, if you've never been born again, because if Jesus came back today, it would be too late for you. Everyone within the sound of my voice At least before this sermon is over, if you haven't heard it before, you'll know what the gospel is. And if you die or Christ comes back knowing the gospel and you've not responded, the scripture is clear, you will have no chance. The only people who are saved during the great tribulation period are people who have never heard the gospel in clarity and power. We're coming to that. We're going to do a whole sermon on it. And so, while we often threaten people, or frighten people, understand in the original context, he is saying, I'm telling these things so that you can comfort one another with these words. These are truths of great comfort. So, Paul now introduces a new subject concerning the day of the Lord. He has dealt with the subject, what happens when we die, Now he's going to move into a new subject concerning what happens at the end of the age. And the Bible tells us that the great day of God, the day of the Lord, will come like a thief in the night. Now, if you're new, there's a bulletin there uh, that maybe you picked up, I hope. You can print it out online. And there's just a few simple points that I want you to Get today, and you might want to jot down a few notes. So let's first think about the meaning of the day of the Lord. Let's first think about the meaning of the day of the Lord. Look at verse 1 here in chapter 5. Now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. As to the times, and the word time there is chronos. We get our word chronology from it, and it's used to describe a period of time. And so if you have the new New American Standard, it says as to the periods, so to speak, or the seasons, the Net Bible says. But then he says as to the times and the epics, and the second word there is kairos, and it refers to a point in time. In other words, so as to the general time and to the point in time, you have no need of anything to be written to you. They had already been instructed concerning the general time and the particular time, so Paul doesn't really need to say anything more than he's already said. By the way, they weren't alone in their questions. Remember, Jesus was asked by his disciples there on the Mount of Olivet. They said, tell us, when will these things be? He's talking about his return. What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And then he proceeded to teach them about what would happen. And in the midst of that dialogue, he said in Matthew 24 in verse 36, But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son. The Son didn't know in his non-glorified body. He does now. Nor, But, but, the, but the Father alone. Listen, if you ever hear some preacher some uh, evangelist on the television, setting dates, you should run a mile away because no one knows the day or the hour. Dr. Dwight Pentecost was one of my professors at Dallas Theological Seminary, and in my opinion, Dr. Dwight Pentecost and Dr. John Walvard, two men that I was privileged to study under, were the greatest theologues in the last hundred years concerning the doctrine of eschatology. And Dr. Pentecost would often say to us, those who leave little room for mystery leave lots of room for mistakes. And that's true. When you get some date or it's going to happen on this date, they are going to bring great harm and shame potentially to the body of Christ. Just before his ascension, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. And remember, they're asking him, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He doesn't deny he's going to restore the kingdom. Why? Because he was premillennial. And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times, the chronos, nor the epics, the k- kairos, same words, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. So put in today's vernaculars, Jesus is just saying, don't set dates. But regarding the day of the Lord, Paul says here in verse 1, Now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. He has reminded them that he has already addressed this. Look at verse 2. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Now, I want to look at the analogy that Paul uses concerning the day of the Lord. It will be extremely helpful to us. But I think to start, it might be helpful to define some terms. So let's first think about the length of the day. When we think about the day of the Lord, let's first think about the length of the day. And the word day is used in various ways in the New Testament. Sometimes it can refer to daylight, even that way in the Old Testament. That is the hours between the time the sun rises... And the time the sun sets. Yom in Hebrew can refer simply sometimes to daylight. Sometimes it can refer to a literal 24-hour day. And so throughout chapter 1, morning and evening, day 1. Morning and evening, day 2. He's talking about literal 24-hour days. Now, I know some people have problems with that. They have problems with the fact that God could literally actually create the world in six 24-hour days, because that's totally contrary to science. That's what the devil wants you to believe. He wants you to believe in the evolutionary model. He wants you to believe that we've been here for millions and millions of years. That's what our children are being uh, indoctrinated with in our government school systems. They're taught the so-called theory as a science of evolution because they want to distance God billions of years away from his creation so that you don't think he's up close and personal and that he is coming back to hold man accountable. But listen, these long geologic ages are not taught in Holy Scripture. When God created the world, he created it with the appearance of age. Adam and Eve were full-grown adults. The trees in the garden were fruit-bearing trees. But you see, we have these so-called apologists today who tell us it's okay to uh, believe in theistic evolution. And so when you embrace theistic evolution, what are you doing? You're putting death, disease, thorns, suffering before the fall. But the scripture is clear. Sin entered into the world. And when sin entered into the world, those things came. Now we've got all those things before sin enters into the world. It's just the opposite of what God has unfolded in his word. God created the world in six literal 24-hour days. You say, well, why didn't he create it in six minutes or six seconds or no time at all? Well, God tells us why. He gave us divine commentary in Exodus chapter 20. Listen to these words. Moses comments on the six days of creation that he wrote about. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. For in six days, and now Moses in his parallel gives us some divine commentary on Genesis 1. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy." Now, certainly the concept of a year being approximately 365 days can be established outside of the Bible because that's how long it takes the earth to make a full rotation around the sun. The concept of a 24-hour day can be established outside of Holy Scripture because that's the approximate time it takes the earth to make a complete rotation around its axis. But the concept of a week cannot be established anywhere apart from the Bible. Certainly, God could have made the world in six days or six seconds or no time at all, but he specifically made it in six days to set a model that in six days he created the world, and by example, he wants man to refresh and rejuvenate. And what are most people doing today? Are they refreshing and rejuvenating spiritually? No, 80% of America is not in church this morning. It's pathetic. And so we've seen this horrible event in our nation. Some young man going in and shooting up these innocent little children. What do you think happens when a nation turns its back on God? What do you think happens when a nation says, we don't want you, God? No praise, no thanks. You're not the creator. Evolution is. He gives them over to sensuality. He gives them over to homosexuality. He gives them over to an upside-down mind where people call evil good and good evil. And then you have an 18-year-old kid, and 80% of those kids don't go to church by the time they reach 18. Add to that, you put them in the government school system where they're poisoning little minds, teaching them that transgenderism and homosexuality and safe sex is all okay, and they're defiling their precious little consciences, and we wonder what's happening. It's not a mystery. So Holy Scripture speaks of the fact that God created the world in six literal days. A day can refer to daylight, it can refer to uh, a 24-hour day, or it can refer to an inclusive period of time. For instance, Moses uses it that way in Genesis 2, 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heaven and the earth. In other words, he's summing up the creation account. He is referring to that inclusive period of time in the day, meaning six days. We use it sometimes that way. We speak of the day of our youth. We don't believe we were youth for simply one day, but that inclusive period of time in which we were youth. In the same way, the term the day of the Lord here in First Thessalonians is not referring to a 24-hour day, but to an inclusive period of time. And there are dozens and dozens of passages that will unfold that for us, not just this morning, but in the weeks ahead. That extended period of time. But with that said, the day of the Lord that is coming mimics a biblical day. A biblical day starts from sundown to sundown. Again, back here to our chart, if you'll bring it up. The next event is the rapture of the church, and then the Antichrist at some point will come on the scene. Things as we'll see in a moment, as Paul will say, will look good at first, but then it will get worse and worse and darker and darker and more evil and more evil with wrath coming upon the earth, and then Jesus comes back at his second coming, and the S-U-N in the sky is compared to the S-O-N in both the prophet Malachi and in the book of Revelation. It's going to be a grand, bright, glorious day when Jesus comes back to rule and reign. And it will be a grand day for a thousand years. But at the end of the thousand years, the children of tribulation saints who did not believe in Jesus as Lord, Satan who has been bound for a thousand years will tempt those nations to come against God's Messiah, and it will get dark all over again. And Jesus will shut it down in an instance, and then we will enter into that bright, grand, and glorious eternity, and the day of the Lord will be completed. And so, I want you to think here this morning for just a moment. When we think of the day of the Lord, it mimics a biblical day. It gets dark, darker, bright, gloriously bright, dark again, and then we enter into the eternal state. Now, beyond the length of the day, I want you to think for just a moment with me, the lament of the day, the lament of the day. Lest anyone think that when this day is ushered in, everything will be rosy and cozy. That's not true. When it begins, it begins in a time of darkness. It begins at sunset. It progressively gets darker. And when the church is raptured, the people who are left behind will be lamenting. They will weep like man has never wept before. Jot down a few of these passages. Uh, By the way, Paul said, I told you this while I was with you. Well, what did he use? Remember, most of the New Testament had not yet been written. So how Paul could have told them about this awful day? Right from the Old Testament. Jot down this text, Joel chapter 2. There we read, blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain that all the inhabitants of the land tremble For the day of the Lord is coming, surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it, to the years of many generations. A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. God is telling us there's never, ever, ever been a day like this, exactly what Jesus said, exactly what we read in the prophet Daniel. You can take all the holocausts, all the wars, all the famines, all the pestilences, and put them all together, and they don't even begin to compare that coming seven-year period called... The time of Jacob's trouble called the great tribulation commencing the day of the Lord. Here's Jeremiah 30, verse 2. Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress. But he, Jacob, that is Israel, the people of Israel, will be saved from it. Again, in Daniel 12, now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise, and there will be a time of distress as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 24, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will again. And if those days had not been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. I can tell you right now, you do not want to be here for that day. The severity of it is so great, unless God had cut it short, there would not be a single human left on the planet. Listen to these words in Revelation 6 as the day unfolds. Revelation 6, verse 14, and the sky was split apart like a scroll. When it is rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. You begin to read the seal, the trumpet, and the bold judgments. And at the start of the sealed judgments, you begin to see literal geographical changes on the earth. Verse 15, and the kings of the earth And the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Oh, we often think of the gentleness of the Savior, but on this particular day, men will see the wrath of the Savior. Listen to Revelation 9 and verse 6. And in those days, men will seek death and will not find it, and they will long to die, and death flees from them. Men will want to try to escape, but it will be an inescapable day. Even someone who wants to commit suicide will be unable to commit suicide on that day. It's a horrible It's an awful day. It's descriptive of the wrath of the Lamb. There's the eternal wrath of God that will come when this age is over, but there's coming a time during the day of the Lord where the wrath of the Lamb will come on the earth. Now, beyond the length of the day and the lament of the day, let's think for a moment about the language of the day. The language of the day. Again, Paul wrote in verse one, that he did not need to write to them about the times and the epochs because in many ways he had already spelled it out. So let's read verses 2 and 3. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Now just before the cataclysm of the wrath of the Lamb begins to unfold upon the earth... The first rider of the apocalypse will come on the scene, and he will seemingly offer a solution. He's called the Antichrist. And then we'll be saying, peace and safety. And it appears like, oh, finally, we have reached a new level of security and peace that we have always wanted. But then, unexpectedly, like a thief in the night, the text says, destruction, Will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Now, I believe that the nations of the world are unknowingly preparing for this uh, new world order, as they call it. They're trying to do a, a massive global reset, even as they met in Davos, Switzerland, last week. They want to create a new world order, and just before the wrath of the Lamb begins to unfold, they will think for a moment that they've achieved it. Ah, oh, we finally have it. Notice the two vivid similes. You should circle the word like. If you have a Bible, don't look at me. Look at your Bible. Circle the word like twice in the text. Paul tells them that the day of the Lord will come. First, he says, just like a thief in the night. Now, if you've ever had your home broken into, you know that the burglar never writes you a note to tell you that he's coming. No, he usually comes too in the night, under the cover of darkness, when he's least likely to be discovered and caught. That's when he comes. And so in Matthew 24, when Jesus speaks of the second coming, he says the second coming will come like a thief in the night. The world won't be ready for his return, just like they weren't ready for his first coming. Neither will they be ready for his second coming. But in the same way, the day of the Lord, different event, that will also come like a thief in the night. Unlike the rapture where Paul included himself with the pronoun we in it, notice the change of pronoun. He now speaks of them. They shall not escape, namely unbelievers. The day of the Lord, however, for the believer should not overtake you like a thief. Now, notice the second simile. The day of the Lord will not only come like a thief, but it will also come like labor pains. Verse 3 while they are saying peace and safety, then suddenly will come upon them, suddenly like, there it is, like, circle it, suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. Now this word suddenly is emphasized in the Greek New Testament. For suddenly in the pregnancy of an expectant mother, labor begins. Even with all of our modern methods, you cannot escape the fact that when a baby comes, it comes with labor. It is inescapable. And Paul says, they shall not escape. God planned it that way, that when the day of the Lord comes, there's no escape. Now, we just read about those who will try to escape. They'll try to hide themselves in the caves from the wrath of the Lamb, but they will not be able to. Now, both illustrations teach us something about this day leading up to the second coming of Christ. Like suddenly in the middle of a night when a thief breaks in, even so suddenly... Like a woman who's pregnant, her labor begins. At the same time, there's some obvious and distinct differences. Labor pains upon a pregnant woman come as no surprise, but once they suddenly start, there's no escape. They both are sudden. The burglar is unexpected, whereas the laborer in the pregnancy is very much expected. And so putting these two metaphors together, the day of the Lord that will commence after the catching up of the church, it will be sudden and unexpected like a burglar in the night, and it will be sudden and unavoidable like a woman Beginning to deliver her baby. And the first case, there's no warning. And the second case, there is absolutely no escape. Now, that's the meaning of the day. Secondly, let's think about the message of the day the message of the day of the Lord. Truth in the Bible is always practical, it's always applicable. And so, since the day of the Lord is coming suddenly and unavoidably, how should we live as believers in Jesus? Well, Paul tells us in verses 4 through 11. First, we're taught we are to wake up. We are to wake up. Follow along as I read verses 4 through 6. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief, For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Now there's a real shift here of emphasis when you come to verse four. Verse three starts, while they, speaking of the lost people of this world, but verse four, suitor, it's the strongest contrastive in the Greek New Testament, but you. You, by way of contrast, you believers who know Jesus, you are to be different. Now, please notice, Paul is using this word sleep differently than he did in chapter 4. Words in many languages, including Greek, will very often get their meaning from the context. Sometimes there's a word that always means the same thing in English, as in Greek, as in Hebrew. But sometimes words take on a different nuance depending on the context. When I speak of a trunk, do I mean what's out in front of an elephant? What's at the bottom of a tree? What's behind a car? What's over a sailor's shoulder? All depends on the context. He is used in the fourth chapter, this word sleep as a metaphor for death. We shall not all sleep. That is, we shall not all die. But now he uses this term sleep in reference to those who are spiritually lethargic, to those who are not awake spiritually. And like a man asleep, they're insensitive to what is really happening spiritually in the world. And that's where our nation is today. We're asleep. We can't even see what is happening. And so all these pundits, all this last week, what's the solution? We need this law, we need that law, we need to do this, we need to do that, we need more mental health, we need this. We need people to turn back to the living God. And when you have people out of the church and then you begin to poison little minds as early as kindergarten with soiled, wicked, evil doctrines, Jesus said it would be better for a millstone to be tied around a person's neck and drowned in the deepest sea than to harm a child like that. But that's what we're doing. And if you don't believe it's happening in South Carolina, you're asleep. You don't know what's going on. It's happening, not just in our state, but across America. And God's people better wake up. Paul said this in 2 Thessalonians, 2 and verse 5. Remember, who who planted the church at Thessalonica? Paul did. You can read about it in the Acts of the Apostles. How long was he there? Three weeks. Three weeks. Listen to what he says in 2 Thessalonians 2.5. We're coming to this. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? In other words, if we're going to be, spiritually speaking, alert and sober then we need to know about Bible prophecy. How important was Bible prophecy to the Apostle Paul? He was there three weeks. And he told them about the end times and the coming Antichrist and the day of the Lord and the catching up of the church. I'd say it's pretty important to him. That's why we cover it in the discovery class. Because it's important to the health of a new Christian. It's important to the health of every believer. Now, let me ask and pause here with a question. Will Christ's physical return from heaven happen during the day or at night? You say, well, I, I think it will happen at night. Well, if it happens at night in the United States, on the other side of the globe, it will be day. But let me ask another question. Spiritually speaking, will Christ's return happen at daytime or during the nighttime? Well, the answer is both depending on who you are. In the case of unbelievers, he will come, spiritually speaking, in the night. But in the case of believers, we are not of the night. We are not of the darkness. It's not to catch us that way. Look at verse 4. Look at the contrast. But you, brethren and sisters, are not in darkness that that day would overtake you like a thief. In other words, if we belong to the day, if we're saved, if we've been born again, if we've been awakened spiritually, then we are to live in daytime behavior. We're not to yawn, we're not to live in our spiritual pajamas, we're to wake up, we're to be alert, we're to be ready. For when Christ comes, it is not to take us by surprise, we are to be alert. And this world is asleep, it is in darkness, it is deluded and the great day of God Almighty is going to catch them by total surprise. Now again in verse six, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. The world may be in moral sleep, but we are to be wide awake. Why, for those who sleep, do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night, but since we are of the day, let us be sober. God is reminding us that the people of this world are just the opposite of what we are supposed to do. When do people sleep normally? Well, normally at night. And just like sleep is natural at night, so indifference to God is natural for the lost man. His heart is not a flame for the things of God. He didn't think about Jesus this week. He didn't think about who he could win into the kingdom. He didn't think about his next door neighbor in terms of the coming eternal wrath of God. He's asleep. The only thing he's concerned about is me, myself, and I, that he's got plenty on his plate. He's more concerned about his football team, his basketball team, his hockey team, than he is about the living God because he's asleep. By the way, when do people normally get drunk? Well, typically, they get drunk at night. They, they, They party under the cover of darkness. Oh, they may be religious, they have a form of godliness, but they denied its power thereof. Their theology is no different from that of a drunken man. They think everything's fine, God and I, we got our deal. He understands me. He understands I sleep with my girlfriend. He understands I like to get buzzed. As long as I don't hurt anyone, God doesn't understand. No, He doesn't understand. He calls you to a new birth. He calls you to repent or you will perish. He calls you to a new life. And he calls the people of God to a new lifestyle. Jesus warned in Matthew 24. And because lawlessness, what's lawlessness? 1 John says sin is lawlessness. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. And so we are to dress up We are to put on the breastplate of faith and love. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says we're to dress up by putting on the helmet of hope. It says, but since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, I think most of you know that the word hope in the Scripture is not something that's indefinite, but something that will absolutely happen in the future. And so when Paul speaks about the hope of our salvation, he is speaking of a certain guarantee of something that is going to unfold. And so John says, for instance, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you can know, not wonder, not maybe, but know that you have eternal life. And if you don't know today that if this were your last day on earth, that heaven is absolutely, certainly your home, it usually means in Scripture you just never have been saved. But the believer, the true believer, can know that he has eternal life because it's not earned or merited, it is gifted, it is humbly received. Now, Paul already recognizes that these are believers when he speaks of the hope of their salvation. He's already called them beloved of God. He has already affirmed that they will meet the Lord in the air. Why? Because they're saved people. So he's not questioning whether the recipients of this this letter are, are saved, and yet he tells them to put as a helmet the hope of salvation. Why does he say that? Because salvation is a big word. And if you've been in our discovery class, you've learned there are three tenses to salvation. You've been saved from the penalty of sin in the past. That's called justification. That happens the moment you receive Jesus as Lord. You're being saved in the present from the power of sin. That's called sanctification. As you learn to walk in the Spirit and depend upon Him in some glorious day in the future, you'll be saved from the very presence of sin. And Paul is saying, listen, no matter how dark it may get. Put on the hope of your salvation. Why? Because God is in control. We don't need to despair. We don't need to say, oh my, what is this world coming to? I know what it's coming to. It's coming to Jesus, and he is in charge, and we need to be ready because that's the hope of our salvation. That's the promise. So we may not always know all what's ahead, but we know who's ahead, that Jesus is coming back. So we're to wake up. We're not to be like the unsaved. We're to put on the breastplate. The breastplate protects a man's heart, the breastplate of faith. Where does faith come from? Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. How much time, by the way, did you spend in God's word this week? If you have just a casual attitude towards Holy Scripture, then you're not following this command. God wants us to wake up. He wants us to dress up. But third and finally, he wants us to look up. He wants us to look up. Look now at verses nine and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him." Now, the wrath to which Paul is speaking of in this context is not the eternal wrath of God in hell. Oh, please understand, that's coming. But again, contextually, he's speaking of the day of the Lord, that wrath called the wrath of God that happens during the tribulation period. In describing that seven-year period, listen to some of these verses from the Revelation. Revelation 6.16. The apostle John there called it the wrath of the Lamb. Or Revelation 14.19. John spoke of the great wine press of the wrath of God in describing these uh, seal trumpet and bowl judgments. Revelation 15 and verse one, John saw the last two plagues and he says, in them the wrath of God is finished. In Revelation 16, one, the command was given, Go and pour out the seven bowls of the wrath of God into the earth. And so Paul is reminding us in this context that if you've been saved, you've not been destined for the day of the Lord for this coming tribulational wrath. And so jot down this verse. I already read it once, but I want to cement it in your thinking. Revelation 3 and verse 10. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, And by the way, the Bible does not teach you're saved by persevering, but it does teach if you are saved, you will persevere. That was a question this week on the Bible line. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is to come upon the whole world, never happened yet, but it's coming, to test those who dwell upon the earth. I know what some people are thinking. Well, that's a great promise for the church at Philadelphia. But how does that apply to me, Pastor? Then he says in verse 13, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not to the church, but to the churches. In other words, what he's saying to the church at Philadelphia, he's saying to the people of Community Bible Church. When Jesus comes to rapture the church, he's going to take us out from. This world, he is going to carry us to heaven. We will, during that seven-year time frame, meet the Lord. It's called the judgment of the just, the judgment seat of Christ. Not to see if we get into heaven, but how God will reward us throughout all of eternity. We're coming to that in this series. But understand, before God will pour out his wrath, he's going to take his children out. Before a kingdom declares war on another kingdom, it calls the national homes. What did God do before the great worldwide flood? Well, he took Enoch out directly up into heaven. It's a picture of the rapture of the church. And then Noah is left behind and and he's a picture, he's a type of Israel. And at the end of that awful flood, he goes into a brand new polished world. And that's what's going to happen. The church will be removed, the tribulation will unfold, and then those tribulation saints who come to faith, and we with them will enter into a brand new world where Jesus will rule and reign. Listen, before God poured out His wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah, what did He do with Lot? He removed him. Lot was a saved man. The Bible calls, us, calls him a righteous man. The angels could not, the Bible says, pour out the wrath of God until Lot was removed. Even so, we will be taken out before the great tribulation. Therefore, verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Listen, there are some Christians who think we're going through the tribulation. A lot of Christians today, because they're all millennial, they don't even think there is a tribulation. They just think Jesus has come back, that's the end. Oh my, what a disservice to the Word of God. But then there are those Christians who say, no, obviously, God made some unconditional promises. He is going to come back and literally rule up His kingdom on earth, but we're going to be here for the Great Tribulation. Look, if we're here for the Great Tribulation, we shouldn't be looking up. We should be looking around. We shouldn't be looking for Jesus. We should be looking for the Antichrist. We shouldn't be saying, even so come Lord Jesus, like John said. We should say, even so come great tribulation, so Jesus can come back. Or maybe even so come death, so I don't have to go through the great tribulation. No, we won't be here for the great day of the Lord God Almighty. Now listen, if you're a saved person, you should be engaged in things that are important. You should be a member of a New Testament Bible-believing church, because if you love Christ, you'll love the things that He loves. And if you just come to sit, soak, and sour, there's something wrong on the inside. You say, you're making me mad. I'm just telling you the truth. If you're not loving the people of God, you really can't say you're loving Jesus. And if you're not loving the lost people of this world, look, I am here today because someone cared enough about my soul, and you're here today because someone cared enough about your soul, and God has given you a commission, and if you say, I really love people, and your next door neighbor is on his way to hell, and you never say a thing, how can you say the love of God abides in you? Look, there's coming a time when Jesus comes back, and John will write, and little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away in shame it is coming. Some believers, when Jesus comes back, they will shrink back in shame. They will be so embarrassed that they wasted their lives. Our Father, we thank you this morning for your word, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. I pray today for someone listening, maybe they're on one of our campuses, maybe they're in another nation of the world, but they're live streaming, and they don't really know that they're saved. Father, your word says if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for no reason. That is to say, your word teaches, if we could be saved by the things we do, then Christ died for nothing. Your word affirms that we are saved by grace through faith, that it's not of ourselves. You said, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. You said, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, through Christ Jesus our Lord. Help some dear soul listening, to humble themselves, to admit their moral bankruptcy that needs to be forgiven and changed. Help them to put their faith where you put their sin on your son. You promised that whoever will call on Jesus' name will be saved. Help some person to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And because you save me, I will live the rest of my life for you. Now, Father, I know there are hundreds, perhaps thousands listening within the sound of my voice that has made that decision, but some of us have allowed our love to grow cold. So help us to do some personal inventory, that when he appears, we will not shrink back in shame. We ask it, Jesus, in your holy name, amen.